0: I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Welcome to this podcast of The People's Pharmacy. You can find previous podcasts and more information on a range of health topics at peoplespharmacy.com. COVID-19 has forced us to pay more attention to air quality. We are rediscovering the importance of fresh air. This is The People's Pharmacy with Terry and Joe Graydon.
1: Back in the 19th century, Florence Nightingale recognized that fresh air and good ventilation were crucial for hospital patients. That's why Nightingale wards had big windows that would open wide to let in air and light.
0: Modern hospitals and office buildings are often sealed tight. What's the impact on the spread of airborne infections like influenza or the coronavirus?
1: Our guest today is a forensic investigator of sick buildings.
0: Coming up on The People's Pharmacy, learn how we can make sick buildings healthy.
1: In The People's Pharmacy health headlines, there's a new entry in the ongoing dispute between low-carb and low-fat diets. In the study, researchers recruited 164 overweight or obese individuals. They assigned these people randomly to one of three diets that was followed for five months. The diets were designed so that people neither gained nor lost weight during that time. All three diets got 20% of their calories from protein, but they ranged from low-carb with 20% carbohydrate to high-carb with 60% carbohydrate. Many dieters are enthusiastic about low-carb diets because they see a rapid response on the scales. However, doctors worry that a low-carb diet, which is necessarily high-fat, might raise blood lipids. If it did, it could increase the risk for cardiovascular complications. Instead, the scientists found that people following a low-carb diet had healthier blood fat profiles and lower insulin resistance. They saw no change in LDL cholesterol compared to those in the high-carb group. In addition, LP little a dropped by 15%. The low-carb diet eliminated processed foods and sweets, but included fruits and non-starchy vegetables. Most of the fat in the diet came from olive oil, avocados, or nuts.
0: Many people trying to lose weight cut back on sugar by substituting beverages with artificial sweeteners for their favorite soda. A study in Southern California compared hunger responses to water, a drink sweetened with sugar, and a drink sweetened with sucralose. There were 74 adults in the trial which measured blood sugar, insulin, and a range of hunger-related hormones. After drinking the assigned beverage, volunteers ate what they wished from a buffet meal and their caloric intake was measured. For women, especially for heavy women, the artificially sweetened beverages resulted in greater reaction to food cues. As a result, they ate more following the sucralose sweetened beverage. This could make weight loss more challenging if people are drinking artificially sweetened beverages containing sucralose.
1: A study published in BMJ Nutrition Prevention and Health analyzed the impact of nutritional factors on mental well-being in kids. The researchers collected information from more than 7,500 high school students and over 1,200 elementary school students in Norfolk, England. In addition to gathering dietary data, the investigators administered tests to determine optimism, cheerfulness, and relaxation, satisfying interpersonal relationships, clear thinking, and competence. The youngsters who ate the most fruits and vegetables had the highest scores of mental well-being. Only about one-fourth of the kids got the recommended five servings a day of produce. About 10% had no fruits or vegetables at all. High schoolers who consumed energy drinks instead of a traditional breakfast had the lowest scores. Many people hate getting shots. That may account for why
0: some individuals are vaccine-hesitant. A new technology offers a solution. Researchers have created a 3D-printed polymer square device about the size of a dime. The patch contains multiple micro needles just long enough to reach through the top layer of the skin. The micro needles are vaccine coated and provide a much more robust immune response than the standard shot with a syringe. The authors conclude that their three d printed micro needles provide a useful platform for a non invasive, self applicable vaccination.
1: When people complain of hip pain due to osteoarthritis, doctors may offer a corticosteroid injection. There's growing concern, however, that such treatment could lead to rapidly destructive hip disease, or RDHD. Researchers at a hospital in Honolulu tracked patients who had treatment for RDHD between 2013 and 2016 those who had received steroid injections into their hip joints were more than eight times more likely to experience rapid degeneration of the joint. And that's the health news from the People's Pharmacy this week.
0: Welcome to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Joe Graydon.
1: And I'm Terry Graydon. People love TV shows that feature forensic investigations. Shows like CSI and Bones reveal how investigators can examine clues to figure out who committed a crime. Today, we'll find out about a different type of forensic investigator.
0: Our guest is Dr. Joseph Allen. He is a forensic investigator of sick buildings. Dr. Allen is director of the Healthy Buildings Program and an associate professor at Harvard's T.H. Chan School of Public Health. His research focuses on the critical role the indoor environment plays for our overall health. One of the world's leading experts on sick buildings, Dr. Allen is the co author of the book, Healthy Buildings, How Indoor Spaces Drive Performance and Productivity.
1: Welcome to The People's Pharmacy, Dr. Joe Allen. Well, thanks for
2: having me.
0: Dr. Allen, you are a forensic investigator, if I'm not mistaken, Uh, someone who studies sick buildings rather than dead bodies. Can you explain for our listeners what your job entails?
2: Yeah. So thanks for making that distinction uh, right off the bat. Yeah, I'm a professor at the Harvard School of Public Health, and I my field is the field of healthy buildings. But prior to leading that uh, program at Harvard, I used to do forensic investigations of sick buildings, and I still do it. Uh, and by that, I mean buildings where something has gone wrong, uh, cancer clusters, uh, breast cancer cluster, brain cancer cluster, infectious disease outbreak in a hospital. I've done this for a long time, and it's a forensic investigation. You have to figure out Uh, Is there a causal link? What's driving that? Is the building playing a role? And what we find is that, yes, in many cases, buildings are playing a key role in making us unwell.
1: Well, you mention hospitals. And in your book, Healthy Buildings, you actually describe your very first forensic investigation that you did in Grady Hospital in Atlanta. Can you tell us a bit more about that, please?
2: Sure. I'll share what I shared in the book, and this is all public. So uh, we were called in to do an investigation of a Legionnaire's disease outbreak. Uh, Legionnaire's disease is caused by bacteria in the water, Legionella water in the water, uh, that uh, has to become aerosolized. And then we, you know, if you inhale it, it can cause Legionnaire's disease, a severe uh, pneumonia. Uh, and in that investigation, what we did, like in any of these, we look at the building systems, in this case, the water systems to understand where are the breakdowns happening that are allowing this bacteria to proliferate and where's the exposure happening? In this case, likely showers or other places where you can aerosolize um, this bacteria in the water. Uh, And that's really, and you know, this, this is serious. Many tens of thousands of people get Legionnaire's disease every year. This is not something that's historic. Many people have heard about the famous Legionnaire's disease outbreak when it was first discovered in the 70s, but really this is still common around us all the time and several people died. This is serious in this hospital, and this and deaths from legionnaire disease happen too frequently. And the good news about this is that we're able to identify the root cause of the problem and, importantly, put in controls to keep everyone safe going forward. And in that way, it's a different type of virus we're talking about, or that's a bacteria, but thinking about infectious disease. But it's the same principles apply to right now, which is how do you assess a problem, find out if the building's related to it, If you do, how do you put in controls to mitigate that problem? And that's essentially what we did in this case. And for years, I led the Legionnaire's disease outbreak investigations for the firm I was with.
0: Now, I assume the name Legionnaire's disease is not after the French Foreign Legion, but perhaps some geography in Atlanta?
2: Well, it actually comes from you know an outbreak that happened at an American Legion conference, and at the time, uh, this was a uh, it was unknown what caused this. A lot of people got sick, several had died. There was a big scare. There's this unknown cause uh, at this um, uh, American Legion conference. Well, it was, it was traced back to in that case an air conditioning system, but the causative agent was identified as this bacterium, which now we call Legionella, named. After this first outbreak, and it was called Legionnaires' disease, so that's really the genesis of it. But it was a lot of people think that it was a one-off, one-off and historic, you know, historical event. Uh, and a lot of people think it's just through the air conditioning system. But the reality is, Legionella are ubiquitous; they're around us all the time. They're in water systems in all of our buildings. They proliferate when you have stale water or tepid water, too warm water that doesn't move around much. Not a lot of, uh, say, chlorine to disinfect, uh, and then over time. Uh, this can build up to high concentrations. If you have a a water feature in your building, you know, a fountain, or if you have uh, showers or even a sink with a lot of pressure, the bacteria will come out on the water and it can be aerosolized. If you inhale it, it can cause an infection. And so this actually happens uh, a lot. I just think a lot of people think it was, uh, it's not something we need to be thinking about. I think about it a lot right now, in particular, as we have a lot of buildings that have been unoccupied or lightly occupied during the COVID pandemic. Perfect conditions for growth, uh, bacterial growth in water, stale water conditions, not a lot of movement. Uh, and uh, and the water's not, or the water's in the perfect kind of warm, but not hot temperature that's needed for the growth of this bacteria. And so as
1: people come back into these buildings and start using the water, they they're putting themselves at risk. And of course, they might not even realize if they came down with pneumonia that instead of being COVID-19, it could be Legionnaire's disease.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, I think the clear threat right now is COVID in buildings. But this is something every building owner and uh, you know should be thinking about if you're in an under or lightly occupied building for the past year that uh, you have this condition. Uh, that is something to think about. You know, also, it's a higher risk in places like hospitals. People are immune compromised if you're older. And importantly, the condition for Legionella, uh, you have to have a, a place where it can be aerosolized. It still has to be inhaled. So uh, this is really important in places like hotels where you have showers, uh, hospitals with showers, any place with a water feature, water fountain, water walls. Uh, all of these kind of places can be, can be important for transmission.
0: Now, Dr. Allen, your book is all about sick buildings. What does that mean? What are sick buildings?
2: Well, I mean, it's really any building that leads to people not feeling well in that building. And and I'll I'll keep it everything from not feeling well, like I have a headache, my eyes are irritated, I can't concentrate, up to the very severe disease, like we've been talking about Legionnaire's disease, where people can die. Uh, and have died from underperforming buildings but the big picture term we use for this problem uh, is called sick buildings or sick building syndrome a series of symptoms that people experience in these in these buildings uh, that importantly usually if they're the acute type of impact resolve when you leave so you can tie the problem back to the building and unfortunately i think many of us have experienced this hopefully if you've experienced this the is the acute or minor, uh, relatively minor experience of that. You don't feel right in the building. You're tired. There's something you can't concentrate. Uh, and in some cases, this can be turn out to be something quite serious. And we've been in the sick building era. And really, that's the, the focus of the book here is, is how do we pull ourselves out of this sick building problem and flip the switch here and get to a healthy building scenario where we're not constantly chasing down problems in buildings? I got very frustrated as a forensic investigator. We know how to design and operate buildings the right way. And every one of these cases, we go in there and, and the basics are not being done. The basics to keep people uh, not just healthy, but comfortable and also, you know, impact their productivity mm-hmm. uh, through better buildings.
1: Dr. Allen, when you say we're in the sick building era, what ushered in the sick building era? What changed to make this happen?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. We can really tie it back to uh, the late nineteen seventies with the global energy crisis, and with that, what do we do? And during an energy crisis, we start to tighten up our building envelopes. We start to choke them off with the air uh, from coming in. Right, it's an energy conservation measure. It seems prudent at the time. Maybe, hey, we close, we tighten up our building envelope. We bring in a little less uh, outdoor air, and we'll save that. You know, we'll save some energy. Well, that might be all right from an energy perspective, but it's terrible from a health perspective because what you start to do is keep people inside sealed up in these tight boxes, our homes, our schools, our offices, and you can build up indoor pollutants. And I'm talking about everything from bioeffluent, the stuff that comes off of us, off-gassing from carpets and furniture. Uh, respiratory viruses like we're dealing with right now, and you can have indoor pollutants that are two, five, 10, 20 times higher than outdoor air pollution. But if you asked anybody, well, you know, what's the bigger problem, indoor or outdoor air pollution, most people are probably gonna say outdoor air pollution. But it turns out it's indoor air pollution. We spend nearly the majority of our time indoors, and we've created the conditions to have a buildup of indoor pollutants without properly addressing them. We pick bad products that off gas more than they should, and then we don't let uh, the buildings breathe. And so this has been, we've been in a 40-year sick building era, and it's not an accident. It was by design. and It's codified. It's in our building codes.
0: Dr. Allen, historically, public health experts have focused on things like water quality to prevent things like cholera and typhoid fever. Air quality, it's almost an afterthought. The the coronavirus pandemic, though, it's changed everything. Now ventilation and viral transmission are front and center. I, I wonder how COVID has affected your profession.
2: Well, you know, it's pushed it to the forefront. There's no question we've made great public health gains in all these other areas, the basics of good water quality, good sanitation, good food safety. And you're right. Indoor air quality has been totally ignored. We've been talking about it for a long time. Uh, and a, a couple of companies, you know, many companies, progressive companies have been marching on this with us. Uh, but what you're right, what COVID did was it changed the whole game entirely. The entire world woke up to the problem we have in our buildings Nearly all the transmission for COVID has happened indoors in low and under places. And this has been eye-opening, and I'm hopeful, I'm hopeful that this will be the end of the sick building era.
1: You're listening to Dr. Joe Allen. He's director of the Healthy Buildings Program and an associate professor at Harvard's T. H. Chan School of Public Health. Before joining the faculty at Harvard, he spent several years in the private sector, leading teams of scientists and engineers to investigate and resolve hundreds of indoor environmental quality issues, including sick buildings. Dr. Allen is the co-author of Healthy Buildings, How Indoor Spaces Drive Performance and Productivity.
0: After the break, find out why there was initially such resistance to the idea of aerosol spread of SARS-CoV-2.
1: This is not really a new idea. Florence Nightingale was instrumental in redesigning hospitals for fresh air back in the 19th century.
0: What did the Nightingale wards look
1: like? How did we forget fresh air is important for good health?
0: At some point, building standards shifted to prioritize economics rather than health.
1: What pollutants besides mold and mildew are important factors in health?
0: Find out how to tell if your building is sick or healthy.
1: You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon.
0: This podcast is made possible in part by Gaia Herbs. For more than 30 years, Gaia Herbs has nurtured the connection between people and plants, to deliver nature's vitality. Their full spectrum formulas are designed to provide an herb's complete array of beneficial compounds with nothing artificial to get in the way. Learn more at gaiaherbs.com. That's g a i a herbs.com.
1: Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Terry Graydon. And
0: I'm Joe Graydon.
1: The People's Pharmacy is brought to you in part by Kaya Biotics, organic probiotic products made in Germany, K-A-Y-A, Biotics.com.
0: And by Verizona, an analytical laboratory providing home health tests for hormones, gut health, and the microbiome, online at V E R I. S-A-N-A
1: Our topic today is how can we make sick buildings healthy?
0: COVID-19 has taught us that indoor air quality is crucial for controlling the spread of viral infections. What should we know about ventilation and fresh air?
1: We're talking with Dr. Joe Allen, director of the Healthy Buildings Program and an associate professor at Harvard's T.H. Chan School of Public Health. His research focuses on the role of the indoor built environment for our health. Dr. Allen is the co-author of Healthy Buildings, How Indoor Spaces Drive Performance and Productivity.
0: Dr. Allen, in many places and in many countries, public health authorities initially resisted the idea that SARS-CoV-2 spreads through aerosols. Why was that such a hard pill to swallow, so to speak?
2: Well, uh, where do we start? You know, I think it was a hard pill to swallow because um, it was accepted practice, and particularly the medical profession, that most of the transmission happened through what we call droplets. And these are the large droplets, some you may even see, that, uh, we, that emit when we cough, sneeze, talk. And the thinking was, well, most of these droplets are heavy enough that they drop out of the air, droplets, uh, within six feet. And then, so the problem is one that is simply of distancing. If you're far enough away from somebody, most of it drops out of the air. And then whatever lands on surfaces can contaminate that surfaces. And we have to be worried about surface transmission, or what we call fomite transmission. And so that was the existing dogma. And uh, it was wrong, right? That can, transmission can happen that way, but the majority of transmission is happening through aerosols. I recognized this early. Many of my colleagues recognized this early. Uh, First piece I wrote was February 9th, 2020, trying to raise the alarm on airborne transmission. And that's important because then buildings can play a key role in the mitigation. So I know we'll talk about mitigation, or I assume we will, uh, but let's stay on the aerosol transmission for a second. And it's key to understand how the virus is transmitted because then and only then can you line up appropriate controls. So if the existing dogma is it's droplets, then distancing is what you want and maybe surfaces get contaminated. So then everyone's overcleaning every surface. They're cleaning their groceries from the grocery store and every package that gets dropped off in their mail. Uh, There's a lot of wasted time and attention and resources focused on the wrong thing. The reality is when we talk, breathe, sing, we are constantly emitting respiratory aerosols of different sizes. Some are very big and do drop out, out of the air. The majority are small, will travel well beyond six feet and will accumulate indoors in places that are underventilated. They'll just build up over time. If you're sick and infectious, those respiratory aerosols will carry the virus. And so this is really what's going on when we think about transmission and of, uh, of COVID-19 or SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19. And it took a long time. It took about a year for CDC to even adopt that language, that aerosol or airborne transmission is happening. And it was many scientists, many of my colleagues writing, uh, I've written, I think, over 45 op-eds at this point. Nearly everyone mentions ventilation and airborne transmission. We've written scientific papers, commentaries in medical journals, interviews like this. Uh, It was a big effort. And finally, I think we convinced and got CDC and others to recognize that this was critically important.
1: Now, Dr. Allen, the idea that a disease might be transmitted through the air is not completely a brand new idea in the 21st century. In fact, in the 19th century, Florence Nightingale said you should set up hospitals so that patients are exposed to lots of fresh air. Can you tell us about those Nightingale wards? What did they look like and what were they doing? Did they work?
2: Yeah, I love that you brought that in. You're right. It seems crazy that we're sitting here talking that uh, respiratory virus is transmitted through the air and there's a debate about this, but that's where we are. And you're right. Florence Nightingale, a long time ago, uh, she's got a great quote, "Uh, the only defense a true nurse either asks or needs. Open windows, fresh air. It really is that simple. And this is what we've known for a long time, right? And it seems so obvious Uh, opening up the windows, creating a cross breeze, diluting the concentration of infectious aerosols indoors. This has been known for a long time. In fact, we've talked about, we just talked about the ventilation standard tightening up our building envelope in response to the energy crisis in the 1970s. Well, prior to that, the ventilation standards, the amount of outdoor air that comes into our buildings or ventilation rate, was designed to protect against infectious disease. And this can tie all the way back to Florence Nightingale and others. So for over a hundred years, we knew that the amount of outdoor air that came into your building was related to infectious disease. And we controlled or designed our buildings in such a way to mitigate that. 1970s hit, energy crisis. What do we do? We tighten up our building envelopes. 40-year sick building era. It all It's so obvious that it's even hard to talk about. It's frustrating to talk about. But this is where we've been. And then all of a sudden, COVID hits. And now you have all of these buildings over the past 40 years or longer designed to not dilute aerosols indoors. And now you have a major problem. You have a virus that's spreading around the world. Nearly all of our built environment, our buildings are designed to bear minimum standards, not designed for health and this is where transmission is happening. So we set ourselves up for this disaster, certainly exacerbated the problem when COVID hit, uh, and it ties all the way back, you know, over 100 years.
1: Well, I'm assuming that this idea in the 1970s that you have to recirculate your air and you shouldn't let any outdoor air in, it is, it's an economic decision rather than a health-driven decision. I mean, how did we forget that, fresh air might be healthy.
2: Well, I think you you hit on it. Uh, it's an economic decision and, and I'm not minimizing energy conservation. We need to do this. Climate change uh, is a threat that's affecting us all right now and will have devastating consequences in the years to come if we don't get our act together very quickly. What I think the problem was is that we were presented with this false choice, this false dichotomy. You can either have healthy indoor air or energy efficiency. And that's been totally false, but that's been the premise that we've been told has to exist. The Reality is you can have an energy efficient building that also brings in plenty of outdoor air and creates a healthy indoor environment. It just hasn't been prioritized as such. And to talk about your economic point, one of the drivers of why energy conservation was so popular in the building sector is that it's easy to calculate the return on investment. If I close, if I Shut off the air supply or Keep it really low. I can determine very quickly, back of the envelope calculation, how many dollars I save from energy. What's trickier to do and can't be done on back of the envelope is to think about the health impacts. So, where's the health damages get quantified in that analysis? Oh, maybe I saved uh, $300, three hundred dollars, three thousand dollars. But what if all of my employees are experiencing headaches all day, or they they're not performing well when they're at work, or some of them get severely sick, and that's never factored in to this return on investment, right? We need return on health to be factored into these investment decisions when we think about buildings and how we operate them.
0: Well, I want to talk about healthy buildings in a moment and your co-author's contribution because he is, in fact, an expert on uh, construction and buildings. But but first, I want to talk a little bit about the indoor age that we all live in because it's not just these tight buildings. When we first came to North Carolina, Uh, We attended a a dean's, uh, I'll call it a a welcoming picnic. And it was mid to late August. It was hot. It was humid. And I met another pharmacologist at that meeting, and he basically welcomed me and said, you know, this is the only time of year I'm outside. He said, I go from my air-conditioned house to my air-conditioned car to my air-conditioned office building. I just hate this heat and humidity. Well, I suspect he's not alone, that there are a lot of people spending a lot of time going from their heated or air-conditioned home to their vehicle to their office. And how has that affected our health?
2: Yeah, well, that story is all too common, and it reflects the reality that we have become an indoor species the number that's typically used or the percentage is that we typically spend 90% of our time indoors. We spend all of our time indoors. And in our book, we talk about, well, what what does that mean in terms of your indoor age? And so the math is really quite simple. Take your age, multiply it by 0.9. That's your indoor age, how many years you've lived indoors. So if we're lucky enough to live to 80, well, we'll have spent 72 years in our home, our car, airplane, office, schools, uh, all of this time spent indoors, but we very rarely talk about that impact. And that ninety percent is probably an underestimate. For the example, uh, the example you just gave, and I remember when I presented on this in uh, Dubai a couple of years ago, and I said that stat, and I I heard a couple chuckles uh, in the audience. And somebody said, you know, it's more like 99.9% of the time indoors for the exact reason in the story you shared. Hot and humid, we move from our air-conditioned building to air-conditioned car. And really, for some stretches, we're not outside at all, or very rarely. So if you think, but if you ask people, what does it take to lead a healthy life, right? People are going to say, well, I shouldn't smoke cigarettes. I have to eat healthy. I got to exercise. But no one ever turns that conversation to think, oh, you know what? I should really be thinking about the indoor air quality, the place where I'm spending all of my time. It rarely enters the conversation, but just on the simple math, the simple math of how many years people live indoors, it's obvious. It should be obvious that the indoor environment has an outsized impact on your health.
0: Well, let's talk a little bit about your health because I suspect that there are lots of problems associated with sick buildings. You've already mentioned headaches. And I think people often consider breathing problems, you know, lung issues. But what about cognitive health? What what about the brain? How is it affected? And what other pollutants are there that may be affecting us besides mold and mildew and goodness knows what else?
2: Yeah, I think if people think about a problem building, they probably go to those basics mold, mildew, asbestos, the big things people uh, tend to think about. Probably less think about the chemicals that are in your couch uh, or even how air quality influences your ability to think clearly. And this is a research area that my team at Harvard uh, has been focused on for quite a long time. We have a series of studies we call the COG FX studies for cognitive function. Just have a new one, just came out, looking at the impact of air quality in offices around the world and the cognitive function performance of those workers. And in this case, it's the largest study of its kind conducted over a full year. We have real-time air quality sensors and we're not testing people in extremely unhealthy buildings and trying to find some effect and and so someone listening to this might say, well, that's not me. I, you know, I'm living I'm working in a pretty decent building here as far as I know. What we see is that even in high-performing buildings that there's still an impact on cognitive function of workers, their ability to perform these these cognitive tasks, even when air quality is meets existing standards. And it shows that even good buildings have room to improve and become better buildings. We see these effects at uh, carbon dioxide levels that we would typically encounter everywhere in your where I am right now, in, in schools, and cars, and offices, and airplanes. So what we're showing in these series of studies is that there are these subtle impacts that are having a big impact on our ability to do basic tasks and perform at work or at home uh, that people really haven't been thinking about. And there's a lot of room for improvement in our buildings.
1: Well, Dr. Allen, how can we tell if the buildings that we're spending our time in are actually healthy buildings or if they're not so healthy buildings? What What tools do we have to evaluate that as individuals or perhaps as organizations?
2: Well, I think I'm glad you asked that. I think one of the best things we can do or where the field is going is towards more transparency about how the building is performing. And we have the ability to do that thanks to real-time indoor air quality monitors. So in the past, we didn't have these lower cost sensors that could tell us what the ventilation rate was or whether or not there's a lot of airborne dust. And what we have now is that there's a proliferation of these lower cost sensors and monitoring networks that have the ability to make the invisible visible, right? It's hard to walk into a building and know if the air quality is good. if, If it's really bad, you would know. A lot of people can sense, right, it's stuffy in here. Maybe there's an odor that's not quite right. But most of the time you walk into a building, you don't know. It's really hard, especially thinking about COVID and infectious disease risk. How do you know it's well ventilated or there's good filtration? Well, if if organizations, schools, and everywhere else start to use these real-time monitors, you can actually quantify what's in the air and verify that not only you're meeting these code minimums we've been talking about from the sick building era, but you're actually meeting healthy building standards going above and beyond you know, the occupational worker health limits or these uh, minimum standards that aren't designed to, protect it, uh, to be protective of health, but you can actually hit some of these optimal targets and showcase that. And so the companies, I think, predict soon the good companies that do this or the places that do this and monitor it will start to have a competitive advantage. They'll be able to start to show people objectively that this is, in fact, a healthy building. And sure, compare my numbers against my neighbor's building and this is the building you want to be in, that you want to rent in, that you want to own a home in, that you want to put your office in and put your workers in.
0: I recently purchased a carbon dioxide monitor just to see, you know, how well our house was ventilated. And I was sur- surprised that our kitchen was, was not doing so well. I think, you know, outdoor, it's about 400, 500 parts per million. But in our kitchen, it was like seven or 800 we have a gas range and we've been using our ventilation system much more frequently since we discovered that we have a bit of a problem and it has made a difference i'm guessing that maybe carbon dioxide monitors wouldn't be bad cuz it wasn't not that expensive maybe 100 125 bucks and it really opened our eyes to the quality of the air in our house
2: I think it's exactly right. We do this with our students, and um, I teach a class on healthy buildings at Harvard. We give them air quality monitors, and they, they have the exact same experience. think everything probably okay in their building, or their home, or their apartment. They start monitoring, they realize, wait a second, I didn't know it was poorly ventilated. My carbon dioxide concentration's high. And for those who aren't familiar with it, carbon dioxide levels are a good proxy or indicator of ventilation rate because human through breathing humans are the main source of co2 indoors so really in a simplified way the higher the co2 means less ventilation if you have low co2 uh you're you're well you can be well ventilated and you know i have two of these co2 sensors on my desk right here and i'm measuring it all the time in my house as well and it tips you off and it's surprising i have the same thing uh experience with you it has made me look over a couple times and think wow the co2 is actually quite high it's 1500 parts per million time to open up a window in here get some of that fresh air in. But without the monitors, you really can't detect. A human can't detect the difference between a well-ventilated place and something that is poorly ventilated, unless it's extremely poorly ventilated. So I agree. I think there's a lot of value with this. Just from a public education standpoint, people who want to uh, make their living space a little bit healthier and start to understand which are the areas that may be a problem. But the only way to do it is to monitor.
0: Dr. Allen, I'd like to talk for a moment about mold and mildew. And it's personal because several years ago, we looked up at our bedroom ceiling and we saw some dark stuff starting to show up. And I thought, oh, my, we must have a leak in our ceiling. And it kept spreading. And it was pretty scary. And we did all kinds of checking and nothing worked. And we finally had our heating and air conditioning guy come by and he said, you know, I, I think you need a humidistat. I think your bedroom is too humid and the ceilings that you have, they're, they're going to collect that humidity. And sure enough, when we tested, it was humid and it was really humid in our crawl space. I mean, we're talking 70, 80, 85% with the air conditioning in the hot, humid weather outside, so, we completely insulated our crawl space. We put in a dehumidifier. And now our humidity in our bedroom and throughout most of our house is in the neighborhood of about 50, 55%. And that seems to be okay because nothing is growing. So, give us a little sense about mildew, mold, and humidity.
2: Yeah, I tell you, it's a, uh, this is a common. Story. It happens a lot, and you detected it. A lot of people don't even know it's happening. Maybe they smell it. A lot of this mold growth can be happening behind wallpaper or behind walls, and you don't even know it, other than a musty odor. Uh, and it's because of water, and either in the uh, a leak or in your case, and very common. You get condensation forming, usually through some combination or issue around the humidity or how the ventilation system or the HVAC system is or isn't working. Properly, It's important to uh, detect it and fix it, of course. I think it's obvious you don't want mold growth happening indoors. It can can cause a lot of allergic symptoms and reactions. And you mentioned the relative humidity levels you talked about, and, and that's important to talk about because you don't want a place that's too dry because we know this influences our uh, respiratory defenses. Uh, and causes dry eyes and, and skin issues, and you don't want it too wet. For the example, you mentioned you could have mold growth. And so we really hope to hit that sweet spot of about 40 to 60% relative humidity. One, that's good because it protects against mold growth and it confers some advantages in terms of not being too dry. But two, it turns out that for a lot of viruses, uh, this is a sweet spot in terms of, in terms of decreased respiratory transmission so in that 40, 60%, we're a little more protected. When it gets too dry, uh, one, our respiratory defenses, our, our cilia in our lungs don't perform as well, meaning they're not catching as many of these airborne particles when it's too dry. Uh, and so that's important. Also, these small these respiratory aerosols can travel longer distances when it's too dry. So you want to be at about 40, 60% relative humidity if you can. The challenge, of course, is how do you stay in that sweet spot and not like what happened to you, go over, and now you have conditions for mold growth. So it's tricky to manage humidity inside of a building. Um, We talk about it in the nine foundations of a healthy building, but in terms of the ability for a lot of people to manage this indoors, uh, it's hard to manage. It's hard to get relative humidity in that sweet spot.
0: And yet the humidistat is very affordable. It sits on Terry's bureau and we can check it periodically just to see what's going on.
2: I think it's exactly like the CO2 monitors and where the whole field is going is that in the past, it's been hard for any person, a homeowner, someone in a house, apartment, in a school to even know what's happening. Now you can measure your relative humidity, the temperature, the carbon dioxide, particle levels, VOCs, these volatile organic chemicals. You can measure acoustics. You can measure the lighting. And that field is only going to grow. We'll start to be measuring all sorts of things through our, eventually on our cell phones, uh, but that's where the field is going, and it, it's opening a lot of eyes into what the problems are. And that's the first step to be able to fix it, right, as, as the example you gave. First, you have to know what you, what's off. And then when you see what's off, now you can take corrective action.
1: You're listening to Dr. Joe Allen. He's director of the Healthy Buildings Program and an associate professor at Harvard's T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Dr. Allen is the co-author of Healthy Buildings... How indoor spaces drive performance and productivity.
0: After the break, Dr. Allen defines salutogenesis.
1: You'll learn how to mitigate problems with sick buildings. Can you get both good ventilation and energy efficiency? A good HEPA air filter should trap viruses that cause colds and flu as well as COVID. How
0: can we start making the changes we need for better health?
1: you're listening to the people's pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon.
0: This podcast is made possible in part by CocoVia, maker of the most proven and concentrated flavanol extract in the market today, CocoPro Coco Extract.
1: With the proven power of coco flavanols, cocoa flavanols, CocoVia supplements support blood flow from head to toe. This National Physical Fitness and Sports Month Give your heart and brain 100% and support a healthy you with the most proven Flavanol Bioactive. Get 20% off your Cocovia order from May 8th through May 22nd using the discount code fitnesspod at cocovia.com.
0: These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease.
1: Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Terry Graydon.
0: And I'm Joe Graydon.
1: The People's Pharmacy is brought to you in part by Verizana, an analytical laboratory providing home health tests for hormones, gut health, and the microbiome. Online at V-E-R-I-S-A-N-A dot com.
0: And by Kaya organic probiotic products made in Germany, K-A-Y-A-Biotics dot com.
1: How healthy is the air you're breathing at home, at work, in your doctor's office, or at the gym? Is there any way to improve the quality of indoor air without breaking the bank?
0: We are talking with Dr. Joe Allen. He is director of the Healthy Buildings Program and an associate professor at Harvard's T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Before joining the faculty at Harvard... He spent several years in the private sector leading teams of scientists and engineers to investigate and resolve hundreds of indoor environmental quality issues, including sick buildings, cancer clusters, and biological and chemical hazards. Dr. Allen is the co-author of Healthy Buildings.
1: Dr. Allen, we encountered in your book, Healthy Buildings, a term that we had not heard before salutogenesis can you tell us what the heck does that big word mean
2: yeah sure so i hope i'm not scaring people away from the book with that uh but we define it in really kind of simple terms and i think when it's explained people will get it right away but let's start with it's opposite definition. So a, a, a word that a lot of people know, which is pathogenesis, right? Thinking about pathogens like SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19. And the opposite of that is salutogenesis or the creation and promotion of health. It was uh, coined by a, a professor, Aaron Antonovsky, And I like it in the book because it starts to get us to think about how to flip the conversation, right? Health is not just disease avoidance; it's not just pathogenesis. That's half of health, and it's our a lot of our current focus over the past year and a half as we deal with uh, this pandemic. But health is also well being and thriving, and productivity and good cognitive function and good mental health. And I just don't think that pathogenesis encompasses the full range of what we're trying to do. So we take we move from a just a disease avoidance framework and start to think well how do we push this into a more positive holistic definition of health and of course my interest is how do buildings promote that
0: well let's get very specific mitigation how do we make our homes our cars our schools our office buildings our apartment buildings healthier How do we get rid of the toxins? How do we get rid of the mold, the mildew, the pollutants, you know, all the stuff that's making us sick?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. And it's a big one. And I think the first place we start at, which I think we've covered in depth, is first thing to do is recognize there's a problem. And two, recognize we spend so much time indoors that it's something we need to pay attention to. And my team has put out, the Harvard Healthy Buildings team has put out a framework we call the nine foundations of a healthy building. So it's a way to start thinking about all these different factors. Some of them we've been talking about air quality, ventilation, lighting and views, acoustical performance, feeling safe and secure, water quality, thermal conditions. And if we start looking at the scientific evidence for all of these, we we can show that all of these foundations of a healthy building influence our health in different ways. And that starts to point us then towards the solutions. So we've talked a lot about ventilation, air quality, and underventilated buildings. But what about something like the thermal conditions in your home, which you may not even thinking about? And here I'm talking about temperature and humidity. And it's not just a comfort thing. Yeah, I'm uncomfortable. I'm sweating. I'm too cold. Uh, But that also actually influences our health and performance. And I'll give you an example from a recent student of mine. We just completed some research showing that thermal comfort or thermal conditions, temperature inside a space can influence your ability to think creatively. So another domain of cognitive function. So you have all of these you know nine foundations of a healthy building for each one we could look at all these different endpoints and of health. And it starts to point to some of the solutions. So you want to bring in more outdoor air for the ventilation side, for thermal comfort. You want to manage this carefully and don't treat it as, oh, I'm just minorly, you know, it's, it's just a discomfort thing. It's actually a health issue if it's too hot or too cold. It's influencing your performance. Uh, and we could extend this conversation to any of these topics around lighting, biophilic design, bringing in nature, uh, and, and how that influences our health indoors. And all of these factors combined would holistically create a healthy building.
0: So I want to know how to have my cake and eat it too. In other words, I can imagine that there are a lot of people who want energy-efficient homes and office buildings and schools, but they also want fresh air. They want good ventilation. Is it possible? Are there manufacturers who are doing this and installers and heating and air conditioning experts who can say, yeah, yeah, Joe? You can have fresh air. We we can exchange that air five, six, seven times an hour, so that you're getting fresh air, but your bill, your heating bill or your cooling bill won't be ridiculous.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And it's not just can we have it; we have to have it. We have to address the climate crisis at the same time we address the sick building crisis. Uh, And I'd say the first thing you can do is is a step we call commissioning your building. And for those who aren't familiar with commissioning, it's kind of like the process of giving your car a tune-up, which you do, you know, hopefully every year you give it a tune-up, things are corrected. Uh, With buildings, we don't always do that and we should. And the, the simple act of commissioning, which is making sure the systems are performing the way they were designed... Uh, saves energy and also improves indoor air quality. This is based on research at Lawrence Berkeley National Lab, Lab. So you're saving money, great. Saving energy, great for climate reasons and also improving indoor air quality just by simply maintaining your system properly. It seems so obvious and simple to say, but not a lot of buildings do this. Second, as you upgrade or think about the design of these buildings, we need to use things like energy recovery ventilation, ways to keep the heat or keep the cold air, rather than just condition this air and and uh, spew it out the building, you can actually recover a lot of that energy. And that way you can actually increase, keep ventilation rates high, get those high air change per hour turnover rates you mentioned, while not just wasting all of that energy. I also think the deployment and use of these carbon dioxide centers we talked about is another great strategy, because by measuring CO2, we can start to get smarter about where and when we ventilate a lot of buildings right now we're just dumping tons of air in the building even when a conference room isn't being used well we use these co2 monitors and what we call demand control ventilation you can start to modulate when and where that air is delivered so we can get we need to be a lot smarter about how we do it in the past we've just you know overventilated some areas underventilated others and so through some of these newer technologies we can do that but i don't want to forget the basics that commissioning step so just with a handful of things we can readily increase that air turnover rate, bring in more outdoor air while also uh, not being energy hogs, and uh, and make be sure we're being uh, operating correctly in terms of our responsibilities in terms of climate and energy consumption.
0: And I hope we do that not just for our office buildings, but for our schools and for the health of our children, because they are extremely vulnerable. And some of these schools are 20, 30, 40 years old with old systems. But before we even talk about schools, I'd like to ask about filtration because I think a lot of people are concerned about how to prevent the COVID virus or even like flu viruses or cold viruses or hey, there are all kinds of nasty things out there. What about HEPA filters or HEPA, however it's pronounced? We we've had high energy efficiency particulate filters in our home now for Plus 30 years, because I've always been concerned about home air quality.
2: Yeah, well, you're ahead of the game. uh, And so kudos to you. And here's how I think about it. And this is the guidance I'll be giving from day one. So February, really, from January 2020 on what you need to do in your house. So think about, I mean, in terms of to control uh, COVID, so we talked about these respiratory aerosols that are released. Now, how do you remove them out of the air? Well, you can ventilate, which is mo- removing them out of the building, or you can clean them out of the air through filtration. And this starts to get into the HEPA conversation what kind of filters. And the best way to think about these respiratory aerosols is like cigarette smoke. So you have an underventilated, under filtered building, someone's smoking, it's going to be smoky in there. And that you could think about respiratory aerosols the same way. And so Ventilation and filtration work in tandem. They actually work together. Both can remove or protect you from these respiratory aerosols. So let's take the filter side of this. You want to bring in more outdoor air, but then what if you can't, or what if you've maxed that out? Well, if you have a mechanical system, a lot of that air usually gets recirculated, some fraction of it. So you want to upgrade the filters in your mechanical system to a filter we call a MERV 13 filter, M-E-R-V. MERV is just a rating system for filters. A typical building has a MERV 8 filter in the recirculated system. That might capture as low as 20% of these airborne particles, including respiratory particles. A MERV 13 will get you 80% or greater for most of the particle sizes we're interested in. So that's the basics. If you can't bring in more outdoor air or you can't install these MERV 13 filters in your recirculated air, that's where these portable air cleaners with HEPA filters come in great solution for a lot of places, schools, offices, homes, where you can't maybe do the overhaul of your mechanical system. You can get these devices from any hardware store, or any shop, you can buy them online, plug and play, keep it really simple. Uh, and the HEPA filter captures 99.97 percent of particles. If you buy a device that has a lot of air thro- flow through those good filters, well, now you're adding a lot of clean air into the space. Uh, and that can dramatically reduce the amount of respiratory particles in the air.
1: How much is that going to cost?
2: So you can get a good device for a couple hundred dollars. And, you know, it's worth spending another minute talking about this because there's lots of snake oil out there and you really just want to keep it simple. And I'll give you a rule of thumb. If you're thinking about how to pick a portable air cleaner, there's lots and lots out there. You just want a portable air cleaner with a HEPA filter and a, what's called a clean air delivery rate, a CADR, that's high. And so what's high? My rule of thumb is you want a CADR of 300 for every 500 square feet of space. So I'll say it again, a, look for a CADR of 300 for every 500 square feet of space. That'll be sure you get four, five, six air changes per hour in your space. And that means you're getting a lot of turnover of clean air. And so when they're sized correctly for the room, we know it can provide a lot of benefit. And to your question about what this costs, it doesn't have to be cost prohibitive and it doesn't take months to fix your system. It doesn't, you don't have to hire a real expert. You can just do, we have these tools available on our Harvard Healthy Buildings website. Just pick the portable air cleaner that's sized right for the room, plug it in, turn it on high. And uh, you, you should be confident that it's removing aerosols from that indoor space.
1: Well, that's very helpful for right now and the foreseeable future, as long as we're dealing with um, SARS-CoV-2 potentially floating around in the air. I would like to ask you another question about balancing health effects against cost. I know that you and your co-author have looked at companies' balance sheets. What about the bottom line effects of looking at the building systems. Can you tell us a bit about that, please?
2: Yeah, sure. And, th- you know, I have a brilliant uh, co author here, professor at Harvard Business School, John McCumber, and we have a complementary background. He's a, at the business school side, he's a finance guy, ran a large construction company. So he understands buildings from that perspective. I understand it from the health perspective. We've been lecturing in each other's classes for a few years, and we said, you know, we got to put this down. Uh, in a book. And I really like the financial analysis because it drives home the point that the performance of buildings not only drives human performance, but also drives business performance. So let me explain that. Just using the data from our COG effects study, our cognitive function studies, we can show that people are more productive or more likely to be productive in a building that's designed to these healthy building standards. Well, in the book, we walk through some proformas, some financial uh, sheets of some buildings, and we show that these improvements, if you make these improvements, the costs are trivial relative to the benefits. And to put a fine number on it, we find that some of these companies can have a 10% bump on bottom line performance simply from making these investments in the basics of healthy buildings, improving the air quality. So uh, I think that's important because that I've seen moves the needle in the conversation when talking with some companies, maybe don't believe the science or maybe they're not quite ready to act on it. But if you show there's this bottom line impact, well, C-suite gets this. The CEOs get this right away that this is a no brainer, right? It's good for people's health yes, they absolutely support their worker health. And two, I can get a bump to the bottom line performance of my company just from improving air quality. And that answer is absolutely yes, too. and I think we make a convincing case of that.
0: Dr. Allen, in summing up your career as a forensic investigator of homes and office buildings and hospitals and schools and trying to awaken people, including a lot of your public health colleagues, to the concept of healthy buildings. Why should we care? Why is this important? And how can we begin to make the changes that will be so critical to our health?
2: Well, you know, I'll make the case that buildings are central to health in a couple different dimensions, uh, and I'm clearly uh, very passionate about it. But we've talked a lot about one aspect, that you spend the majority of your time indoors. This has an impact on your health, and even the majority of exposure to outdoor air pollution happens indoors. Outdoor air pollution penetrates indoors, but because you breathe so much more air indoors, most of what you're breathing of outdoor air pollution happens when you're indoors. So even outdoor air pollution is more important indoors, believe it or not. Let me add even a wider lens on this as we start to think about climate change and other factors. Buildings consume 40% of global energy. So the decisions we make regarding our buildings and energy and health are impacting our health, not just from the time we spend inside these buildings, but it influences our health beyond the four walls of the building. So when we think about healthy buildings, it's wrapped up in all of the conversations today. Buildings are impacting us in terms of COVID risk during this pandemic. They're impacting Us in terms of what's happening with the climate through our energy decisions around our buildings. It's influencing our cognitive function and performance at work through the air quality we're breathing constantly. It's impacting our hormone health and our reproductive health through the chemicals we decide to use in our building products. There isn't an aspect of our health that buildings don't touch, in fact. And I've said, and I'll say it again, that the person who designs your building has a greater impact on your health than your doctor. And that sounds wild, but it's not. Across all of these dimensions, buildings are playing the central role in our overall health. And finally,
0: your website, because it sounds like there's a lot of valuable information. Sure.
2: We have all this information at the Harvard Healthy Buildings Program. If you Google Harvard Healthy Buildings Program, you should find us or you can go to forhealth.org, F-O-R-health.org.
1: Dr. Joseph Allen, thank you so much for talking with us on The People's Pharmacy today.
2: It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
1: You've been listening to Dr. Joe Allen. He's director of the Healthy Buildings Program and an associate professor at Harvard's T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Dr. Allen is the co-author of Healthy Buildings, How Indoor Spaces Drive Performance and Productivity.
0: Lynn Siegel produced today's show, Al Wadarski engineered, Dave Graydon edits our interviews, B.J. Liederman composed our theme music.
1: This show is a co-production of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC, with The People's Pharmacy.
0: The People's Pharmacy is brought to you in part by Kaya Biotics, probiotic products made in Germany from certified organic ingredients, KAYABiotics.com.
1: Today's show is number 1,274. You can find it online at peoplespharmacy.com. You could subscribe to our podcast through your favorite podcast provider. We post the show on our website on Monday morning. This week's podcast contains additional information that wouldn't quite fit in the broadcast today.
0: If you'd like to make a comment about the show, look for the post on our website, peoplespharmacy.com. Again, it's show number 1274.
1: At our website, you can sign up for our free online newsletter to get the latest news about COVID-19 and other important health stories. By subscribing to the newsletter, you also have regular access to our weekly podcast, and you can find out ahead of time which topics we'll be covering.
0: In Durham, North Carolina, I'm Joe Graydon.
1: And I'm Terry Graydon. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next week. Thank you for listening to the People's Pharmacy Podcast. It's an honor and a pleasure to bring you our award-winning program week in and week out. But producing and distributing this show as a free podcast takes time and costs money. If you
0: like what we do and you'd like to help us continue to produce high-quality, independent healthcare journalism, please consider chipping in.